0: Welcome to the 65th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about a core skill, troubleshooting systems. A lot of folks, especially now, don't seem to place the importance on troubleshooting that once was there. In the early part of my career, almost everybody I worked with had spent at least a year if not more working in help desk. And help desk was never a glorious role. It was never a hey, I'm excited to be level
1: 1 help desk. But it taught Man, how did I skip that? You skipped that? I I skipped the whole help desk stuff. I could have sworn I mean, you mean I did in some low-level support, but I was never actually in a help desk. It's that's just me to, you know, be the exception to prove the rule. Exactly. There are a lot of folks at the university I work with who, instead of going the help desk route, um, worked as what we called ops, which was the guy or girl, university student, employee to sit in one of the computer labs and make sure the printer works and help folks as they need it, make sure they can log on to their workstations, do basic troubleshooting on workstations or report them to the help desk and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and I started out very much in help desk, um, also working for a university as a student. And A different one, I might add. Yes, and there was a lot of, hey, this professor's having a problem with printing or with web browsing or with whatever it is, or they need their machine reinstalled, or they're getting a new machine and go install the machine, take the new one up there, transfer documents, those kinds of things.
1: Printing still... Strikes a deep fear in my heart. Oh, at the core, Help Desk was a hands on
0: lesson in troubleshooting and diagnosing problems. It got you really, really deep into the is this the computer? Is this the network? Is this a faulty hard drive? Is this an application misbehaving? Is this does the problem exist between chair and keyboard, or is this is this problem legitimately that Google is down? Whatever it is,
1: and part of the Help Desk thing that is an important skill is that it helps you learn how to troubleshoot a problem sort of through another person because usually you're on the other side of email or a phone call from someone who's at their keyboard trying to figure out a specific problem. And that's different from being at the keyboard yourself and figuring out the problem yourself. And we did both in in my role. We were both
0: phone support and we were, hey, we can't do this over the phone, show up in person, walk over the crash cart, do whatever it is you need to do to go figure it out. And to me, in essence, troubleshooting, the the real meat of it is breaking down whatever the stated of problem is into a chunk of discrete testable parts. You know, is it the network? Is it this? Is it that? And as you eliminate pieces of things that could be the problem, you narrow down the problem space and you tighten in on what exactly could be left at fault. And these are just problem-solving exercises. These are just basic um, root-causing and basic um, binary tree. You're saying, okay, is it this half or this half? Nope, it's it's not over here, it's over there. And these kinds of exercises, honestly, can be taught to middle schoolers or high schoolers. Yep. I, Should be. I started, like, I effectively started my career when I was in high school and I was working for the school newspaper and I was helping debug computer problems. And why isn't PageMaker working? Why isn't this working? Why isn't the laser printer running? Why why can't we get the whiteboard up and going? And a lot of those pieces, those skills I took with me into my first job as a university student. And then I took with me into my first professional job. And it's an extraordinarily
1: useful set of skills. There's several questions I keep on my little cheat sheet of what of- how to torment an interviewee that are basically here's a problem. We're, we'll pretend to be the computer, you pretend to be the operator, and walk us through, uh, ask us questions. What would you do to narrow down this problem? And getting a good feel on how a, an interviewee handles problem solving is. It, that's really what makes the decision in my mind of is this person somebody I like to have on the team or not? And yeah, because so much of what we do is either troubleshooting
0: existing systems or building new systems and trying to design them in a way that handles failure gracefully, and one of the one of the things that I do as I'm building a new system, is I do failure testing. So I I I kind of get a sense early on, and I document the sense of when. Various things fail. What does it look like? So when it happens at 2 o'clock in the morning, I've I've already seen this before. I've seen this particular problem, this particular failure mode, or this pattern of behavior before, so I can go right to the most likely candidate of a problem.
1: I was literally doing this Friday, like two days before we recorded this. Um, I and our good old buddy Jared are looking at rolling out Thanos to work with Prometheus. And part of our sort of sanity testing is how does it perform when you toss a bunch of queries at it? Uh, Or how does it perform with a bunch of different queries? What happens as the load goes up? How does the the managed instance group in GCP handle auto-scaling? And what do the failure situations look like? And yet didn't take us long to, to find
0: some fun failures. And I did very much the same thing with Kafka when I was first playing with it because it was an unknown to us. And so what happens when a zookeeper fails? What happens when somebody just powers off one of the Kafka brokers? What happens when you disable one of the raid disks and let it slowly struggle apart? And <laughs> nice. It, well, it, it teaches you a lot of things. And so it's just, okay, What well, what can I do within reasonable time constraints to failure test the system. And it's kind of reverse engineering troubleshooting from, from the other side. It's a really excellent skill to build up. And if you have the time when building a system, always, always, always do it.
1: But anyway. And part of my tact is, is how do you figure out how to scale a new system that you've never really built before, you don't have a lot of experience with? How can you push it to figure this scaling, this size will work and, and perform as you expect it with the load that you expect. And that's very much in the same problem space if you push it until it falls over. You push it in different ways until it falls over. And once you've
0: done this enough or you've seen enough problems in your career, because a lot of this stuff is not teachable in a classroom setting. This is all stuff that you kind of have it's to experience. Yeah, you pick it up as you go, and you get the sense of what happens when a system has a CPU-bound process, or a memory-bound process, or the I.O. is is tied up on something, or you're having a faulty network connection, and you learn a sense of what kinds of failures result in what kind of system behaviors for any system. And so when you're digging into a problem, you're just like, Yeah, this really feels like we're out of memory. And then you go and you look, and you're like, yeah, we're swapping like crazy. Okay, now... Now I have something else I can work with and I can, I can f- follow down the rabbit hole of what the problem could be quickly.
1: So experience is is like this. Running Prometheus, sometimes machines get CPU bound and a lesser experienced person will go and, and say, well, clearly we need more CPU cores allocated to this, this job. One of the reasons Prometheus can become CPU bound is because it's memory restricted and doing a lot of work to try to keep enough memory free to be operable. And actually, adding RAM is the correct solution to your CPU bound problem. And yeah, that's an experience thing that's not always quite obvious. But there are lots of problems that, as you gain experience, you realize. This feels like a RAM problem. This feels like a CPU problem. You knew how to classify them. And before
0: we get into some more specific examples, because I've got a, a fairly decent one from my personal life. Um, another thing that's, that's really important to call out is there are times, especially professionally, when you're being paid to do a job, that there are times when it's worthwhile to troubleshoot and go figure it out and run it down. And there are times when it's you, you just shoot the other node in the head and get back to work. You... You don't worry about it. You're like okay, well that one's that one's acting up. I'm just going to kill it and the other one's healthy and we're going to keep on going. Because we don't have time to
1: really debug this. It's not that important. I'll just bring up another one and we'll keep on moving. So well, with our advent of cloud and dare I say serverless architectures, we're moving into a culture where eh, that machine failed, whatever. It automatically gets respawn. How much does anyone care? And they're there are a couple classes of of problems there that it takes some more experience to sort of dig into. Did that VM fail because your cloud provider had a hardware failure and things just got spun up in a different place and life goes on? If that happens, we're finally in the world. We don't have to worry about hardware. That's not a problem that we can debug other than the log message of, GCP reported a host error. Okay. Um, But there are also the issues where you're doing serverless architecture, you're doing immutable architecture, and you start seeing problems. They recover if the VM gets, or the job gets restarted. But you'll note, they will probably come back to haunt you because the problem isn't the architecture. The problem is somewhere in in the code that you've written. But even there, like... Moving
0: our Elk stack from bare metal to the cloud has been life-changing in so many ways. And part of it is that when a host falls apart, we don't even notice. We We don't get paid. Nothing happens. It just, another one comes up and it takes over the load. And when we get back to work on Monday, we're like, oh, well, looks like we lost a machine over the weekend. And we have about 500 machines as data nodes at this point. And we don't worry about it. It's just, it's... Like okay sure we, if we lose a machine a month or we even we lose a machine a week we don't care like we just don't care at all we don't go and troubleshoot it we don't go and root cause it because it doesn't matter it it's not worth the time to go figure Harder out problems are no longer worth tracking down but even some of the the edge case software things that are, they may be causing this we also just don't care anymore because it's not worth the time there's there's so many small pieces that each one of them can fail that as long as the other ones take over for it, I don't... I just don't mind. As long as the other ones take over from it and doesn't become an undue burden, yeah, it'll recover by itself. So keep that in mind as you're, as you're trying to figure out the problem-solving pieces of this and you're trying to troubleshoot an issue. Sometimes it is not worth troubleshooting. Sometimes it's better just to walk away from it and do another one and get back to work. And that line is super hard to define. And my... I have a... I've been struggling with a problem that I didn't want to talk about on the podcast until I had it fixed, and I finally have it fixed. But you sure? I am absolutely sure at this point. <laughs> um, it has been a long and trying road. So I have a personal file server at home that has like all of the family photos on it, three and a half terabytes of family photos. It has all kinds of other media and stuff on it. And it runs ZFS and it runs free NAS. And it's got oh, it's, you're running a real operating system. Yeah. It's it's eight discs. RAID-Z2, so there's two parity disks, and with ZFS's, ZFS's data assurance stuff, when you when the machine crashes, it comes back up and it's fine. It doesn't corrupt the disks, it doesn't corrupt the stuff. You, you may lose the last transaction group or two, but you
1: don't lose data. And hey, that that's great. ZFS is wonderful. If you do have data loss in a file that it cannot recover, ZFS will actually tell you which file was corrupted. Not that they were... You know, corruption on sector 53, you no, know, it will actually tell you the path to the file that it toast. So I use NFS in my
0: house for a lot of things because I've got a whole pile of VMs running things. I've got a Raspberry Pi running Prometheus that's doing my espresso machine's boiler temperature monitoring. And I report lots of things back through shared data on NFS because, as crummy as NFS really can be, I know it reasonably well and I'm used to it. And I was having problems with a specific directory that was mounted to one of the clients that was writing to it. And messing with files in that directory seemed to cause problems. And the machine would reboot. The file server would just, would just go offline and come back up. And it's a super micro board. So it's a, it's a low-end, white-box, server-grade board. It's a Xenon. It's got ECC RAM, all that.
1: And in the IP, It's a step logs, above low-end.
0: Well, it's... It's not super a... Super
1: micro, ECC... Yeah, it's... Usually what I would buy.
0: (laughs) And in the IPMI logs, because it has IPMI, there was a watchdog timer that would fire, and then a hard reset would happen. And there was an undecodable error code. It's like, oh, that's kind of weird. And so I I blew out the file system thinking, okay, I probably got some data corruption from NFS. I've, I've done something stupid, and it was probably just me. And every week or two, something would happen, and it would reboot. And it's like, that's getting really irritating. And, and ZFS would come up, and it would scrub through and say, oh, all your data's fine, and I never found any data corruption. But it kept on getting worse and more frequent and more frequent. And it got to the point that if I turned on a ZFS scrub, the machine would reboot. And I could go into a file system, and I could use find, or I could use a, like a, just an empty bash loop, and say, SHA some any particular file. And within a couple of minutes, the machine would reboot, bring it up and mem bringing it up, booting it up off of a MemTest USB stick, and letting it run for 24 hours, running MemTest, no problems. Bringing up CPU stress benchmarks, no problems. That
1: was like the first thing I would have recommended one to find. Yeah, and I just want to point out how interesting and tricky these kinds of specific hardware isms can be to to diagnose.
0: And they're maddening because the reboot process takes about five minutes on this machine. Because I have an actual HBA in it running all the drives. I've got ECC RAM, and I do not turn off memory checking. I've got all of these things going on. And it takes time. It takes a while for the thing to come back up. And so you do something, you're testing something, and then it restarts. And you're like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to take a break for five minutes until it comes back up.
1: And, of course, you lose any debugging state you had.
0: And there's nothing in the logs. There's Absolutely nothing in the logs. The only thing you have that there was a problem is uptime has changed and you have these two entries in the IPMI um, SEL list. So you're digging and you're digging and you're losing your mind very slowly. And you stop really trusting that the machine's going to work. Like you can you can read files off of it and you can run Lightroom off the network catalog and most of the time it works. But if you try to do a big reindex, index it, it reboots. And you finally start breaking down and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and test every individual drive in the system. And so you DD from the drive, not from ZFS, but from the drive itself to dev null. One drive after another. No problems. Everything's perfectly fine. No errors reported. Because DD is, is not the most ro- robust program that way. It'll, it'll fail in errors. And it comes out fine, so okay. Well, maybe maybe the HBA is bad. Maybe I have a bad RAID controller that has gotten corrupted in some way. That under a certain load pattern is falling apart, but ZFS is saving me. So I order another RAID controller. It's only thirty bucks.
1: Oh, that is a cheap RAID controller. Yeah, out of well, it's it's an <laughs> cheap LSI. Cheap RAID
0: controllers can be well, this is an LSI that's flashed into initiator target mode, so it's not doing RAID. It's just doing basically passing a, a PCI Express through to to SATA channels. And it's a so cheap SATA card. Yeah, but it's an, it's an LSI. And it's a reasonable card.
1: Yeah, and so I LSI should be reasonable. So I got a second one,
0: and I put it in, and I had the exact same problem. And I figured, okay, well, maybe Freenas has some weird bugs. I changed versions of Freenas a couple of times, same problems. I load up Ubuntu Live Stick, thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll just change ZFS implementations entirely. Ah, yes. The. <laughs> The solution is always to try Linux, right? <laughs> well, the solution is to try something else.
1: And I bring it up, and in the live, the live USB yeah, you stick... you are isolating the in- entire operating system away from the problem. Yeah, and I, I bring it up. I install ZFS on the live stick because it's not installed by
0: default. I import the pool. It imports just fine. I say ZFS scrub tank, and two minutes later, machine reboots. Same same errors in the log. Yeah, at least you know it's not be your uh, OS. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's something wrong with like the way the memory is seated. And I, I start like, I I bring the power to out of the closet and I start just going through components. Like, okay, I'm gonna rearrange the order of the DIMMs. I'm gonna rearrange this. I'm gonna redo that. I mean, and, usually that would come out in mem test. But thinking that maybe just something was like timing
1: was off. I don't know. I I was I was grasping at straws and I was so even frustrated. CPU issues, um, CPU damage. Uh, comes out during mem tests because you know you need CPU magic to uh, compare the pattern that you're putting in RAM.
0: Oh, and I, I discovered in this process that if, like if I manually stopped one of the system fans, I put my finger on like one of the case fans, that shows up in the logs too. So like the IPMI stuff was working; it was working correctly. I pulled the jumpers off to say don't don't use watchdog. Like I turned off watchdog D. I did all those things, and it still happened. And just do logs, just no log, just reboot. And after. I had finally gotten to the point of saying, okay, well, what's left to replace? I can replace the drives. I'd rather not do that because that's the most expensive thing to put eight new drives in. I can replace the power spinning supply. Rust. I can replace, yeah, spinning rust. But I can, repl- I can pl- replace the power supply. I can replace the motherboard, CPU, and RAM together because it's new generation of stuff. And the power supply is cheaper, but I really don't think it's the power supply. And I was digging through forums and somebody posted my exact problem. And the solution was, and I don't know how I I didn't find this earlier. But the solution was, he's like, yeah, replace the power supply, everything's fine now. And I'm like, well, he's using consumer consumer grade components and whatever. But I'm like, you know, a new power supply, ninety bucks for a good
1: one. You never, I never have had weird, funky hardware problems, and have found somebody post on a forum online a problem that was super similar, sometimes kind of in the same category. That you know might give you some good advice, some things to check, but not something that's basically your exact problem again.
0: And this was after two months of you know casual research because I couldn't work on this full time. I, I have a I have a job and I have a family. I have other things going on. What you have a job and a kid? Yeah. Too? And so I felt like okay, a new a good power supply, a new one is ninety or hundred bucks for the the kind of load that I'm going to put onto it. That's cheaper than buying a new motherboard, CPU, RAM.
1: I'll do it, and if it doesn't work, I'll send it back. Compared to the amount of time you've already put into it, another 100 bucks was not a large expenditure.
0: Yeah, so I went on Amazon, and I found a fairly reasonable CP- or power supply that had all the things that I wanted. It was modular and had all the SATA connectors I needed. And I drop it in, and from the moment that the new power supply brought things back online, I've had absolutely zero problems of
1: any kind. Ah, oh, power supply death.
0: So what it appears is that the one of the SATA rails was either failing or one of the CPU pins was failing. And under the right load conditions, it would, the voltage would drop enough to the board that the IPMI tools were still online because they have a slightly separate voltage path. And they would record that something bad had happened, but the board would just shut off. And I have automatic restart turned on. And so it go off and then come back up and come back up flawlessly. And because the HBA does staggered spin up on drives, you don't have all eight drives hitting. The I was going to ask if you have
1: the most spin up at once or not on boot, because that would have that should have triggered this as well. The HBA handles that for you. And Thanks, HBA.
0: It only would happen if you were doing a large file copy, large I/O in terms of you know, let's say you're checksumming a a five hundred gig or a five hundred megabyte file, or if you're doing a ZFS scrub. But now it's just working and it's back to working as flawlessly as it it had for the three and a half years before the problem started. And it took months of piecing this thing apart and trying to figure out which component was there and which component was here. And of course I had assumed that it couldn't be the power supply,
1: but it was power supply problems are the weirdest, most finicky. They just don't make logical sense. And I've, I've seen some power supply problems in my day. I have seen a an, a pizza-box-style computer that would not power on in its normal orientation, which is a clear indication that there's something wrong with the power. But if you turn the machine up on its side, it would turn on and act normally. And boy,
0: did that freak out some people. What would happen if you turned it sideways while it was running?
1: I think it shut off. <laughs> I remember uh when we did do some support at Yale University, a coworker of mine bought a power supply tester, which was a handy thing. We had had a few interesting power supply problems. we had had a batch of of computers that were known to have some power supply issues so this is a good idea, right? Well, the power supply tester tested all the pins of the power supply that had the correct voltages and stuff but it only tested for correct voltages and connectivity it didn't test for amperage so and that's most of the problem that you're going to have with a power supply is it works, it delivers the right voltage but the amperage it can produce starts to become unreliable Getting a proper tunable
0: load tester for power supply, that gets really pricey really fast. It's definitely more expensive than your power supply. Oh, yeah. And that's a, that was just an object lesson that maybe was a little too rambly about a personal thing. I, I can't just go to the cloud and, and handle this. I do have backups of all the important things. So one of the things I was worried about was data corruption. And okay, well, I'll just wipe all my, my data out and redownload the photos and stuff but pulling three and a half terabytes of data out of the cloud storage is going to cost you a hundred bucks. Well, it's also going to cost you a hundred bucks just to buy an eight terabyte USB, you know, a cheap USB drive and stick it on your machine and try to copy it off. And I, I was trying to juggle how not to spend money needlessly. Yeah. And it's hard when you're, when you have the confined set of, you can't just throw it away. You can't just do whatever. And you're really trying not to spend money on, on fixing it. So what can you do? At, what, what skills out of your personal arsenal can you bring to bear on this problem to make it go away? So Jack, what is your general... When, when you're approaching something you need, you need to debug or you need to troubleshoot, either in
1: a work environment or personal environment, what is your general process? General process. I think the most important thing is being able to reproduce the problem if you can reproduce the problem, you at least understand what the problem is. Sort of.
0: Or at least you understand the conditions under which the problem happens.
1: Yeah. I mean, power supplies can be super tricky, but you were able to, either the problem got worse, or you were able to, or a little bit of both, uh, figure out what would trigger the problem reliably. And that puts you in a situation where you can do repeated, controlled tests. You can choose a specific change you want to make, make that change, test to see if you can reproduce the problem, and see if that change affected the outcomes. And what you're trying to do is isolate specific bits of of the system to eliminate them from the possible problem domain. Uh, when you boot it off of a... A Ubuntu USB stick. You were trying to eliminate the OS you had installed, FreeNAS, as a from the problem scope. If you had the same problem on FreeNAS and an Ubuntu image, it's clearly not the OS that you're running. Um, and you know, similar with with software problems, can you identify a specific software version you can change? or in a piece of code can you use some print statements let's be stupid and identify which section of a code by moving those print statements closer and closer together exhibits the bug um, that you're trying to narrow down and it's a process of isolation and elimination to come to actually what's producing that error and one thing I do encourage is when you're trying to isolate a change like this or a problem is that you make one change, you test, and then you revert that change. I think a common mistake when isolating uh, software and system issues is you make a change, you test, you make a change, you test, you make a change, you test. Nothing's changed your outcome, but you've completely foobard the system to all the changes you've made. And then you basically come out of this other side of the problem with two problems instead of one. So being able to make careful, controlled changes, double plus good.
0: And I I would like to second the whole reverting the change. I have several times gone down the Docker debug path of trying to figure out what's wrong with my container and make change after change after change only which to realize that Oh, I really don't know what condition the container is in anymore. And I now need to back out each of the changes and validate where I was when I started.
1: Yeah, you just reach into your ZFS snapshots and get your Docker file from yesterday. So, revert is important. <laughs> yeah, control changes, not introducing more changes.
0: I also generally try to look at the stupid things. Like, is my network cable all the way seated? Is my power supply plugged in? Like, I try to do the dumb things first because that's what. After you spent a couple hours on a problem and you notice you're like, oh, oh wow, I'm. Crap! The slash boot file system was full. That's why I couldn't upgrade the kernel or whatever it is. It it, it often turns out to be something completely unrelated to what your problem really is, and then
1: you feel you know pretty I've had finicky. Later. Storage-related problems in some of the machines I've built, and just to beat my head against it and realize that a SATA cable was loose. So, uh, pro tip: if you build your own machines, make sure you buy the the SATA cables that have the little lock on them, so they can't wiggle themselves out.
0: It's sad and surprising how frequently that happens, considering that these machines don't actually move around all that much. <laughs> yes, it frustrates. Yeah.
1: Um, Some of those SATA cables can be cheap. The SATA cables that you get for free with your hard drives may not always be the best choices, unfortunately. I really like building my own machines. Can you tell? Yes, we can.
0: Um, And my final bit of advice for debugging stuff, if you're not working in the throwaway model of the cloud, if you're working in machines that you actually try to care about, is check what packages were updated recently. That frequently lies, new software problems frequently lie down that path of, oh, LibC was updated or SSH was updated or something else happened that has an ancillary effect that has now taken down some other s- system or service that you're running. So early on, look at file system usage, look at package upgrades, look at look at the dumb little things because that'll often give you a good a good idea of what you don't have to worry
1: about. And that exhibits itself in the cloud as well. And the difference there is, is just a different angle in which you look at it. If you respin your Docker images and there's uh, SSL updates to the certificates that lie on disk for your common CAs, and all of a sudden your SSL support stops working, you can relate those uh, pretty closely together. And hopefully, with your uh, lovely cloud uh, deployment, you can also roll that back pretty easily and then be able to debug that in a controlled, isolated test or QA environment.
0: Test, change, be methodical. One change at a time, roll things back. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, We welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 65th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely.
1: Power supply.